You are listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. My name is Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio today is Reuven Sussman, who's doing a PhD in psychology here at UVic. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, joining me. Now, PhD in psychology is pretty broad. Can you give us sort of uh, an idea of a narrower focus of what your research is right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm doing my degree in environmental psychology and social psychology. So uh, a lot of people think that environmental psychology has to do with... um, taking care of trees and uh, doing psychoanalysis on rabbits, but uh, actually (laughs) it's more about uh, human environment interactions. So um, Mm. I study, um, you know, environmental psychology is about how the environment affects us, like lighting and sound and um, nature and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, the part of environmental psychology that I study is um, our effect on the environment. Why do people behave in ways that are sustainable or unsustainable? And I cross it over with social psychology because I'm really interested in um, social factors that contribute to this behavior. That's really interesting. Do you have any insight into why people <laughs> behave sustainably or not sustainably? How much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> There's, uh, I just wrote a book chapter on climate change psychology mm-hmm. or the psychology of climate change. It has a lot to do with uh, or t- discusses um, you know, why people believe in climate change, why they don't believe in climate change, why they're concerned about it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what triggers knowledge about climate change, um, uh, what kind of barriers are there to action, um, and then, you know, how does, uh, you know, things like uh, uh, hurricanes affect us psychologically and our mental health and heat and crime, and there's so many aspects to um, mm. why we behave pro-environmentally or not that um, I could talk your ear off about it. I think I'm going to ask a question that I a lot of people I know that are in the sciences seem to be totally plagued by, and that is why do people not believe in aspects of climate change that are proven by science? Do you have any insight into that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. First of all, uh, just as a side note, I don't mm-hmm. like the term proven by science. Okay. Because science can only disprove things and not actually do so. I like so supported by scientific research. Sure. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Why don't people believe in it? Uh, well, for one thing, um, some people have a vested interest. Um, so, you know, if you work for an oil company, for example, um, it's a lot easier to deny that climate change is happening than to acknowledge it and have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of actually, that brings me to another point. Um, a lot of times uh, there's something called cognitive dissonance that happens. If you believe that you are a good person and you also believe that climate change is happening because of human causes, well, you have two things that are kind of in conflict there. On the one hand, you have to acknowledge that you are a human causing climate change. And on the other hand, you have to acknowledge that you're trying to still be a good person. So sometimes you change your your behavior and you change your thoughts to be like, okay, well, I guess if, I, if climate change is really happening because of people, I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to start being, you know, acting like I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. Other people, it's much harder to change their behavior. Um, they're really heavily invested and so um, they'd prefer to just deny climate change, change that idea that climate change is happening instead of changing the idea that they're a good person or changing their behaviors to match their that, that aspect of them. So there's that. There's also um, uh, there's a lot of you know, um, demographic factors. It turns, it turns out that, maybe not surprisingly, uh, people who are more right wing, conservative, Republican are less likely to believe in climate change. Um, 
it turns out that it's kind of part of the identity of being a right-wing person now. It uh, used mm-hmm. to be nobody would question the science behind climate change. It was maybe you'd question how what to do about it. But now in the last 10 years, it's become more and more a divergence between left and right-wing, where now if you're right-wing, you not only... Uh, question how to deal with climate change, but question the existence of climate change at all. Um, What are some of the other reasons? Um, uh, Some people um, are contrarian. They don't believe in it. They they just believe that the NASA NASA moon landing was faked. They also believe that HIV doesn't lead to AIDS. And they just just believe in any conspiracy. So uh, they're, they're very contrarian in general. So they they tend to be less likely, to, more likely to deny climate change. Um, there's there's so many reasons. Um, basically, there's all kinds of other conflicting things that come into people's minds that mm-hmm. sort of make it easier to deny it or, or not believe in it. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to your actual, uh, like your PhD right now, mm-hmm. I'm sort of, I sort of got sidetracked in going into all this. Oh other yeah, stuff. sorry. Yeah. What are mm-hmm. you? Um, what is sort of going to be the focus and then the outcome of what you're doing right now? Okay, yeah. So right now I'm focusing on um, people's attitudes, subjective norms, and perceived behavioral control regarding behaviors that are pro-environmental. So. Uh, in particular, I'm looking at, you know, how likely are people, like, how do people think about and feel about donating or supporting uh, environmental organizations in some way? So um, my question has to do with a theory called the theory of planned behavior. Essentially, the theory of planned behavior suggests that people's attitudes, subjective norms, and perceived behavioral control lead them to set an intention to do a behavior. Once they've set an intention, they're very likely to do that behavior. Mm-hmm. So if you th- could take the example of supporting, uh, let's say, the Ancient Forest Alliance. If people have favorable attitudes towards supporting them in some way, donating money or signing a petition or whatever, and they um, believe that everybody else is doing it or that everybody else approves of them doing it, that's the norms aspect, and they believe that they have uh, control over their own behavior or they think it's really easy to do, mm-hmm. they're much more likely to set an intention to actually support that organization and then they're act- they're much more likely to actually do that behavior. So that's the theory of planned behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, my theoretic, because I'm just doing this little theory- theoretical change, this is very different from what I usually do in my research. I'm sort of turning it on their head on its head and saying maybe there's reverse causality. Mm-hmm. Maybe once you set an intention to support the organization, subsequent to that, your attitudes change, your perception of the norms change, and your perception of control changes. So there's some research that suggests, for example, once you decide that you're going to do something, that goal seems a lot easier to do afterwards. So it's, you know, setting the intention caused perceived control to change. There's also some suggestions that... Oh, like yeah. it's like sort of within your grasp all of a sudden. And, exactly. Yeah. It seems a lot easier to do. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, once you have set an intention to go to the gym, you know, once a week, that seems a lot easier easier to do than it did before when you weren't even thinking about going to the gym. Right. Um, once you, you're like, okay, I, I'm going to do it. Uh, things change. Your mindset changes. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happens is once you buy a red car, for example, you start seeing red cars everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> once you, you know, so this is the idea of um, the false consensus effect. Once you, I believe, state an intention to do something, you start believing that everybody else is uh, approves of that or that everybody else is also doing it, you start seeing other people doing that around you. Hmm. 
And the last aspect is your attitudes change. Once you set an intention to do it, you think it's more important to do. So, um, you know, once you, let's say, um, uh, set an intention to start composting, you start thinking, well, actually, composting is really important for the environment. It's one of the best things you can do or what have you. You know, yeah. so your attitudes are changing. So my whole idea here is that um, it doesn't just go. I think it does go in a forward causality manner. Like I do think attitudes, subjective norms and control influence your ability to set an intention. Mm-hmm. But I also think it works backwards. I think that once you've set an intention, those other three things are all are affected in a reverse causal manner. Hmm. So that's kind of the, I'm sorry, it's, it's so detailed and uh, <laughs> not very easy to digest, but um, that's, that's what I'm doing. It's interesting though. So um, when it comes to um, like environmental psychology, what you're looking at, um, are you specifically looking at people supporting environmental organizations and how do you actually research this and then maybe prove or support your, uh, yeah. your theory? Really good question. I, this is this is the crux of it. This is why research like this hasn't been done before. It's really tough to tease apart things like intentions and perceptions of norms and control because they're all internal. They're in your head. Mm-hmm. So... Um, how, I don't remember what the first part of the question was, but yeah, are you? Oh, first of all, are you looking specifically yes. at like supportive? Yeah, right. So, what am I looking at? So, because I'm studying environmental psychology and social psychology, so this is a social psychology theory. This is why I say mm-hmm. I study social psychology. I'm applying it to an environmental psychology question in terms of you know supporting an environmental organization. Mm-hmm. It could be an intention to do anything. It could be an intention to like quit your job or to get a new job, or it could be to you know um, have a hamburger for lunch. I don't, whatever you could, any intention is, is possibly explained by this theory, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in pro environmental behavior and what, uh, how people think about in this case, supporting environmental organizations. Um, the way that I, I've decided to research this is, um, using questionnaires that ask people about their perception of norms, their perception of control and their attitudes towards supporting these, these organizations. Now, how do I prove that or s- support the idea that, one is causing that intentions are causing these things in a reverse causal manner. The way I've decided to do it uh, is in three studies. Um, the first one, just using uh, what's called a cross-sectional analysis, or uh, sorry, not cross-sectional, uh, a cross-lag correlation. You measure intentions, attitudes, subjective norms, perceived control at time one, and you do it again at time two. And then statistically, I can um, do correlations among those constructs at the two time points. And I can see which one is more likely to cause the other one based on uh, statistical analysis, basically correlations. Mm -hmm. Um, That's study number one. Mm -hmm. Study number two is a more experimental sort of study. I've decided to use something called the free choice paradigm. (laughs) So the way the free choice paradigm works is... uh, you get okay. So classically, this is the free choice paradigm. You go to the lab and you say, the per, the experimenter says to you, please rank uh, these five or eight or whatever fourteen paintings in uh, in terms of how much you like them, and they're all abstract art. So let's say you put you know you put them in a certain order, number one to five. Let's mm-hmm. say there's five of them, and then the experimenter says, oh well, as it happens, we have the two that you rank number three and four here in the back. Which one would you like to take home with you? So you have to make a choice between two of them, number three or number four. Mm -hmm. Well, most of the time you'll pick number three because you ranked it a little bit higher than number four. But what happens is you automatically start engaging in cognitive dissonance, especially if you don't have the option of later bringing this this painting back. You have to choose right away. 
So your brain starts thinking, making reasons up as to why you like this one more than you like the other one. And then when you come back to the lab a few days later, you're asked to rank them again. Well, you rank the one you picked higher and the one you didn't pick lower. It gets, you have this separation of, of, of preferences. Hmm. So that's the free choice paradigm. I'm using that in a way to say, well, maybe it's not just your attitudes about these paintings, or in this case, these organizations, as in like you prefer one more than the other. Maybe you also think that other people prefer one more than the other. Maybe you also um, think that one is easier to donate to than another one. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? If you substitute paintings for For uh, environmental organizations. So what I'm saying is when you come to the lab, instead of choosing uh, rank ordering or paintings, you're rank ordering the uh, level of intention you have to to support either any of these. And then uh, you choose... I say something like, I hope none of my poten- potential participants hears this, but um, you, you, I say to them, okay, we're partnered with these two organizations for the purpose of this study. No ones that are right, that you've ranked number uh, three and four, or in my case, it'll be two and three. Which one out of these two would you prefer to support? Mm-hmm. You're choosing one. And then, so you're setting an intention to choose one over the other. And then when you come back to the lab a few days later, I'm going to say, well, now, would you tell me about your attitudes about them again, your perceived control about them again, your, your, your subjective norms about them again? And I'm hoping that they'll change subsequently. So this is how mm-hmm. I'm sort of controlling intentions and seeing that maybe intentions lead causally to the other one. So you're hoping that they will choose the organization that they ranked higher, and then when they come back, they will question their decision? Is that what you're hoping for? That maybe they wanted to, or now they feel they prefer the other? Is that what you want? No. Actually, what I'm hoping for is that they've picked one, and now they prefer it even more than they did before. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's it's basically saying, once you've set an intention, things change. They don't change the opposite direction, but they change so that you like them even more than you did before. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the idea. That's mm-hmm. how I'm showing that one causes the other in a reverse direction. Yeah, I think um, I think that kind of makes sense to me. You know, on, when I'm thinking of you know people that really resolve to do something, even if it seems distasteful to them, you know, they can almost like talk themselves into like it's not as bad as I thought it was, or like you're looking. I think it's something more positive, but I feel like I can see sort of you know, people in my own life who've done that and like, you know, it's not the worst thing I ever did. I, I'm okay. I oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's exactly what it's, it's like. Um, once you've, once you've decided you, you've uh, resigned yourself to doing something, you're like, well, it's not so bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a really, uh, you know, in a future study, I think I should look at that because that's probably a very <laughs> important driver of behavior. Yeah. How did you come to this? What uh, led you up to this point? Or have you always had an interest in the environment or did that sort of naturally come up um, as you were pursuing your studies? Uh, yeah, you know, I've had this question a lot lately. I actually, I really like psychology, which I studied as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was particularly interested in clinical and social psychology. I wasn't sure what I would go into. I never thought I'd go into grad school. Right. <laughs> then I took a course when I was in, in undergrad in global change in the environment. It was my, you know, what's it called? Uh, extra. Uh, oh, elective? That's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I took an elective course in global change in the environment, mm-hmm. and I, I became very um, aware of environmental issues, and I really developed a passion for environmental like issues and decided that's really the number one issue facing our, our planet today, and I need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, subsequent to that, I took a course in environmental psychology at U of T, and then I graduated. I spent two years 
you know, working at Sam the Record Man, getting a job in clinical pharmacology and mm-hmm. uh, doing research at the hospital for sick, ch- sick children. Finally, I decided, you know, I think I am going to go to grad school and I think I'm going to do something I'm passionate about. F- forget making money because <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> that doesn't happen. And, uh, and instead, you know, I'm going to study environmental psychology. And that's why I'm here um, because few people know this, but actually one of the top researchers in environmental psychology worldwide, he doesn't like me talking about it, but uh, is Robert Gifford. Uh, my supervisor here at UVic. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I go to it's. It's funny because for me, it's just Bob, uh, mm-hmm. and and I go to conference conferences and I talk to other environmental psychologists and they're like, "Who's your supervisor?" I'm like, "I don't know if you know him. His name is it's Robert Gifford." And they're like, oh, "You you study with Robert Gifford?" Like, and, <laughs> you know, I I had no idea that you know he he's just the guy here. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in fact, uh, kind of a tragedy here. We don't even have an official program in environmental psychology. Hmm. Um, we're still fighting to get that in the in the department, but uh, and yet we have a, a some very some a great group of grad students, and uh, and and Bob is a fantastic mentor and a really well known person worldwide. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it sounds like it's a good marriage then of those two interests of hmm. uh, environmental or environmental issues and psychology. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, hmm. I I, um, I feel uh, blessed that I'm able to um, contribute to helping the planet in this way. Yeah. Did you do your master's at UVic and continue through to PhD or, um, yes. Uh, my, yes, I'm nodding my head. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, sorry. I didn't want to cut you off. That's okay. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I thought I'd join up, you know, mm-hmm. just like a lot of people, I'm only going to commit to doing my master's. But, mm-hmm. uh, as soon as I got here, I realized that my supervisor and I got along very well and I was really liking the issues and I was just really getting started. So I decided to continue on doing my PhD as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say being out on the West coast here, especially Victoria, this is a very fertile ground for people interested in environmental issues as well as activism. Have you ever been interested in activism or been involved with that? Or is this, are you more looking at things from an academic perspective? Yeah. Um, I think, um, Robert Gifford really sets a tone of academia in our lab. And um, although I'm somebody who, perhaps even more than other people in the lab, is really interested in changing behaviors um, in order to make differences in the world, um, I think that I'm more academic right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when possible, I do participate in protests. I study the effectiveness of protests and other behaviors like that. I'm working with the Ancient Forest Alliance um, occasionally mm-hmm. when when I can, um, and I incorporate. So my, my version of activism is um, doing something good for the environment as part of doing my studies mm-hmm. uh, and helping organizations and helping push the you know agenda envi- of environmentalism forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do my own part and this is my part, how I do it. Yeah. In the, uh, when sort of like introductory emails, when I was looking for grad students, I noticed that um, there, you mentioned something about talking to people about climate change and you just mentioned changing people's behaviors. Can you elaborate on what that means a bit? Talking to people or changing their behaviors? Are they talking to people about, I think it was talking to people about changing their behaviors. Is that right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, one of my goals as a graduate student, uh, or as um, somebody who will eventually get my PhD in psychology, was to translate my knowledge to people like in the general public. Um, I think that's the way to change to make change in the world. So um, that's one of the reasons I'm here talking yeah. to you. That's what uh, I signed up for the Speakers Bureau, and I talked to. Uh, I just did a couple of uh, lectures for grade 11 students on the, the psychology of climate change and how to be an agent of social change. I did a, a number of studies or 
uh, one big study on um, creating a program uh, to see if we can create effective agents of social change, people who are very influential in their social groups, et cetera, and whether they can make social change that way. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, translating knowledge and sh- sharing with the general public is really important, especially in this area. So uh, whenever I can, I take the opportunity to teach. I take the opportunity to lecture outside. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I did the Dean's Lunchtime Lecture Series. I, In the same day I spoke to those grade 11 students, I went to a retirement home right after and I, t- I gave them a talk um, on, on how to be an agent of change. And um, I, I hope to empower people this way. And that's what I'm, mm-hmm. that's my strategy. It's interesting talking to those two very different age groups. Do you get similar responses or surprising responses from either of them? That's a really good question because, you know, um, speaking outside the university to non-academics is, it's very exciting and very scary. Like I, I've done, uh, you know, 20 plus conferences in my life, um, speaking to other academics and there's a very clear like, uh, language and a very clear understanding of what kind of questions you'll get. And, uh, uh, you go and speak to to young kids. You know, I've I've given this, uh, talks to like grade six to eight year olds, or grade six to eights, uh, as well as in grade elevens and now retirement residents. And people have the craziest, some very interesting questions that I wouldn't have thought of that are really important. And you have to really change the the, the tone. So um, I frequently get questions about whether climate change is actually happening, and that's mm-hmm. really not my area of specialization. I don't. I mean, I'm based going from the premise that it is happening. And yeah. I've read some information about that. Uh, I get questions, you know, um, when I talk to children in grades six to eight, you know, I talk to them about uh, social norms by saying, um, which one of these pictures uh, shows somebody who's cooler? Is it these guys who look like they're in a music video and they have money that they're spending like it's going out of style? Or is it this girl down here who has a bicycle um, and she's just riding her bicycle? Um, <laughs> and, you know, the kids, they're like, they know right away. In fact, it, what's really funny is with the kids, I put a hypothetical question on the board mm-hmm. uh, and they answer it. <laughs> or it's like a rhetorical question, I should say. Because, you know, you, you put it up at a conference and that's just a rhetorical question and then you'll subsequently answer. Anyways, so the kids jump in and they, they know exactly. When I say the same question which one's cooler to to these retirement age people they're like obviously the one riding the bike is cooler (laughs) you know um or i don't like the idea of you asking me what's cool because i'm not i don't care about what's cool so you know you really have to uh i'm learning a lot about engaging people of different ages and um Mm -hmm. when i when i signed up to talk to people outside the university i didn't realize i was going to be getting into this everybody's really old or really young situation right yeah yeah it's interesting uh, to hear that as well, just the experience of talking like as, and as an academic talking to non-academic people. I have friends that have gone through and finished their master's and I'm always really interested in hearing what they're studying. And I've been to one friend's uh, oral defense and it was funny because all of a sudden I was like, oh, whoa, like this is <laughs> oh, very no, different yes. than what I was told. <laughs> you know, well, not different, but just like the language is yeah. so different. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. It's mm-hmm. really funny. I had a, I have a friend who or a former uh, roommate who's in... Uh, biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And he talks to me about what he's doing at, at school sometimes, but then he was actually giving a talk and I was like, Hey, I'll go check out your talk. And I, f- I understood the first two slides, which is equivalent to about 10 minutes. And right. then there was an hour long thing. I had no idea what he was <laughs> saying the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, he was talking to other people that speak his language. And, uh, I think knowledge translation is a really, uh, it's undervalued in academia and really important in ac- uh, mm. for academics to know as well. Do you think that, um, 
I don't know. I, maybe because I work at the university, but I'm not really taking classes or anything right now. And I spend a lot of time talking to people who are explaining their work in like layman's terms, essentially. But I feel like um, I feel like more and more people are becoming. It's more accessible. Maybe just because I'm embedded in all of this. But I don't know. Do you think people are seeing like more value in that and trying to be more accessible to the general public? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a complex question because. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that now we're seeing more sophisticated academics coming out uh, and more is demanded of academics. You can no longer just be like a, a, a nerd, like reading, doing your numbers and staying in the lab. Mm-hmm. And that's an acceptable thing. Now you need to be able to talk about your research mm-hmm. um, because there's so much more competition. You know, you're expected to much more is expected of you. I think you also have this issue of academic inf- inflation. Sorry to use more jargon, but... <laughs> Academic inflation is what I call uh, now it's no longer enough to have a high school education. Even plumbers have university educations, mm-hmm. you know, um, people's general understanding of, of uh, academic content is higher and people mm-hmm. understand more. So we have like um, the academics sort of uh, catering to uh, a lower level as well as the lower level getting higher. And yeah. I think that that's uh, that's what's happening. Hmm. Yeah. What time is it? Oh, we're almost out of time. Can I ask you, uh, what are you uh, planning on doing once you're done your PhD? I am hoping to get a faculty position. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is like the the, the, the uh, ideal point, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to do. Yeah. I also hope to stay in the city because I have a band here that I really like playing in and I, uh, I have friends and I've set down roots, you know. Uh, so if I do stay in the city, maybe I'll get a government job at something like the Climate Action Secretariat and then teach on the side. Mm-hmm. If I leave the city, then maybe I'll be able to get a full-time academic faculty position where I get paid to do research and to teach. Yeah. Uh, either way, I plan on um, continuing with environmental education uh, and talking to people about how to improve the environment and what we can do You know, beyond understanding that things are happening, how to get people to change their behavior so they really do make a difference. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, go to our website, cfuv.uvic.ca, and click on the Listen tab.